Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Courage Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Love, and today I'm just as excited as pretty much every other episode because I don't ever have any guests on that I'm not excited about. Well, today I have Dr. Thompson on, and I'm so it's so crazy how our paths always cross with people, but I am super excited for her to explain to everyone and tell everyone about all of her knowledge. She is a holistic pelvic health physical therapist, and she is uber knowledgeable about so many things that I will admit I was completely clueless about. And like I've said on previous episodes, as a nurse working in the hospital, I thought I knew a lot about a lot, but it actually didn't pertain to anything actual health related. And it actually didn't help me in anywhere in my own life until I got out of healthcare, started educating myself with the things that were actually going to benefit my now life and my body. And that has been a journey. And I'm excited for Dr. Thompson to tell us what you know. Yeah. Thanks for having me on today. Um, so yeah, my name is Dr. Melissa Thompson. I am uh, I have a clinic here in the Woodlands, Texas with my husband. Uh, he is also a physical therapist. We just have two different specialties. He does not do the pelvic floor. Um, <laughs> but um, I have been um, running my own clinic for about three and a half years now after I kind of got out of what we call the PT mills where um, it's just not quality care and it's not the care that we know people deserve. And so a lot of physical therapy is moving this way into these small standalone private practices where a lot of physical therapists are kind of going out on their own. And um, I do mostly, I do women's health. I also do men's health as well, but I predominantly see women for pelvic floor conditions, which opens the door for just a whole host of gynecologic issues and even biomechanical and musculoskeletal issues that have a direct or indirect relationship with the pelvic floor. So if you're new to hearing about the pelvic floor, it is a sling of muscles that goes from pubic bone to tailbone from front to back, and then from side to side, from what we call the sits bone to, to the other sits bone. S sounds like it's just a small little group of muscles, but actually it holds a big function. Um, it is the powerhouse of the pelvis. It is the base and the bottom of your core. So your core is not just your abs. It's actually layers and layers of your abdominal muscles and fascial layers your diaphragm and your rib cage, your thoracic spine and lumbar spine, all the way down to the sacrum and coccyx. And then the bottom of your core is those pelvic floor muscles. So when we're thinking about holistic practices with physical therapy, we're thinking whole body. We're thinking if these muscles are part of a bigger piece then we need to be looking at the entire relationship and involvement of how this is the abdominal canister. So how does this abdominal core canister, diaphragm, spine, rib cage, pelvic floor, all relate and function together? And this plays a huge role in your bladder function, your bowel health, your um, sexual health, and then even orthopedic things like you might have heard of 
sciatica and disc bulges and hip impingements and labral tears, all of those are going to cause changes to the pelvic floor and abdominal canister. And it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, which happened first was the pelvic floor involved, which then created some of those changes to the spine. Did the issue happen with the spine and now the pelvic floor is gripping and reacting. And so that's where my job as a pelvic therapist gets to be like a little detective going on a diagnostic hunt of what is the actual driver of the issue. And so people's treatment ends up looking vastly different because if if your pelvic floor problem is actually coming from, you know, let's say a sacral nerve root issue, we're going to do more lumbosacral spine targeted treatments versus if you um, maybe you have some weak muscles in your pelvic floor after a vaginal birth and it's just purely pelvic floor weakness, those two people are getting a completely different treatment approach to address their symptoms. So that's your anatomy 101 (laughs) that you might not have asked for with the, um, with the pelvic floor. And I'm also certified as a fertility awareness practitioner through Lisa Hendrickson Jack. She wrote the fifth vital sign. Everyone needs that book. So make sure you go look it up if you haven't, um, heard of it, but, um, fertility awareness is another holistic, um, approach to, natural hormone balancing, um, achieving pregnancy naturally, reducing period pain, balancing hormones. I think I said that, um, but I use both. I use the fertility awareness in my practice. And then I've also used it with clients who are just solely focusing on that piece of the puzzle. What does that look like? What is the fertility awareness about? So it looks like a lot of fun. (laughs) So if you haven't heard of fertility awareness, um, this is kind of contrary to hormonal contraceptives. Um, We're getting deep into your cycle. We're exposing your cycle for what it really is, not just... So let's back up a little bit. When you're on a hormonal contraceptive, You're bleeding every 28 days because you're having a withdrawal bleed from the medication. It is not a period. So you're actually not cycling. You're not having any of the hormone ups and downs. And it's just that they placed the uh, pill bleed at 28 days. That's research. You can find all kinds of papers and things um, if you're interested in looking that up. So when we're not on contraceptives, we have a natural cycle and we might be interested in achieving pregnancy and, um, or we're faced with something like endometriosis or PCOS. And if you take a deep dive into your cycle, you will actually see yourself a different way than you've ever seen yourself before. So What's happening is you are going through a transformation of um, really actively taking a role in your reproductive health, and you're going to be looking at your body signs. So cervical mucus or cervical fluid, um, 
basal body temperature and cervix position is our three body signs that we observe daily as part of the symptothermal method. There's a ton of fertility awareness-based methods, the Creighton model, the two-day method, the Billings. So whichever method you are going to use, you just want to get a practitioner trained in that method, stick to it, follow the rules of that method. So in my method, um, I teach the um, symptothermal method derived from the Justice, which uses some of the language of the Creighton. <laughs> so I don't know if that's too many too many things uh, going back, but um, it is one of the most scientific methods when we cross-check all the signs. And what I will have people learn is how to actually check and chart their mucus. A lot of people will say, I only see that like one day a month, or I don't know, I don't think I see very much, but it's because there wasn't a standardized process to actually check and chart. Then I see it on the paper and I'm like, this looks amazing. You have an awesome buildup of cervical mucus because what's happening is when, when we're done with menstruation, now we go into what we call our pre-ovulatory dry days. And I'm describing a textbook cycle. Every single person I've ever worked with does not have a textbook cycle. We're just, we're not textbooks. Um, so you go into your pre-ovulatory dry days until this hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone gets secreted from the pituitary gland, and it actually starts to um, build the race on all those little immature follicles. They start growing. Eventually, one follicle becomes the dominant follicle. Once that one is chosen, estrogen becomes the primary hormone that is being secreted to mature that follicle. The estrogen is a direct relationship and is directly the reason you're seeing the cervical mucus. The higher the estrogenic content, the more egg whitey and stretchy and slippery you're going to see the mucus. And that's why the best days of conception are gonna be the days of that egg white stretchy mucus because those high estrogenic content days are really close to ovulation because that egg is getting so mature, it's getting ready to release. So once we get to that point where estrogen has risen to its threshold, that's what triggers the luteinizing hormone surge, which is what folks might commonly hear as the ovulation test which is actually a misnomer. It's an ovulation predictor. Um, when your LH surges, that usually, with an asterisk, usually means that you'll ovulate 24 to 36 hours later. In cases such as PCOS, stress, um, illness, fever, you can get that LH surge and then go right back into the ovarian follicle maturation and then LH again. And so we need ways then to confirm ovulation, which is the, how we're going to continue tracking the mucus and wait for it to dry up. And then also your temperatures are going to rise uh, because once that egg is released, progesterone is the predominant hormone and progesterone causes the drying up of the mucus and it causes the thermogenic shift in your basal body temperature. So long story short, you'll see on the chart all the cervical mucus 
notations, you'll see when um, that estrogenic mucus is happening and then that drop off when there's that sudden turning off the tab and there's no more mucus. And then you'll see that temperature shift. And then as the third sign, you can actually feel your cervix for height, openness, and position. And when that estrogen is rising, your cervix is open. And so it's this amazing cascade of events that basically sperm is going to flow through. It's going to be carried into cervical mucus. The cervix is open. It's going to be shuttled up. It's going to go to the fallopian tube. And sperm can actually live in this mucus for up to five days. So any time between that day and the next five days, if the egg is released, fertilization can occur. So that's a big component of learning fertility awareness. You could have intercourse on a Monday with cervical mucus, not ovulate until Friday, and then actually go on to get positive pregnancy tests from the Monday intercourse and Friday ovulation. See, when I got off birth control and I was starting to track my cycles, I was, I was trying, I didn't know much about that specifically. So I was really just going off of temperature and then like my, um, my cycle timing. And that was still so confusing for me. And my doctor, my functional medicine doctor was like, well, when you're supposed to start your period, count back 14 days from that. And that's basically the time you ovulate, but that doesn't really match up with what my app does. And then my temperature does a weird thing where it spikes and then it drops back down and then it spikes like a couple days after that. So it's like, I mean, luckily I'm single as a Pringle and I'm not, you know, near anybody that's going (laughs) to impregnate me, but I'm just saying in terms of trying to navigate that myself to, to know for when that time in my life comes, you know, to be more cautious around these times. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, basically what you're describing is the rhythm method. So that is any method where we're just predicting and that's what Mm -hmm. all the apps are doing. So you're plugging in your period days and then it's saying like, here's your predictive window. Um, if you're using the method for birth control, that is a surefire way to get pregnant. Um, <laughs> I have seen it several times. Oh, I definitely played <laughs> Russian roulette there for a hot second, but knock on wood, no baby. Um, yeah, um, because what what we're missing you could have a 28 day cycle, but you could actually have like a seven day luteal and like a 20 something day follicular phase. And the prediction is telling you the wrong window. Um, So, I mean, getting kind of into the nuances there, but if we track our body signs, you'll never have to guess. And you just know when you're fertile, You're fertile from the first day you see mucus until you confirm ovulation. And then it's up to the user to decide what are they going to do with that information. So this is fully taking ownership. You are more than welcome to do whatever you want to do, but understanding, okay, I'm going to use a backup method or I'm going to abstain or I don't really care. I'm going to have unprotected sex, but you'll know like, okay, 
this is what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's definitely rolling the dice for sure. Oh, I remember I told my functional medicine doctor just in that time, like what I was doing and she like freaked out and was like, no. And then she wanted me to be off birth control for a solid, you know, six plus months before I even like chanced anything, you know? And I think I was like right around that time. And she's like, no, you need to be more careful. <laughs> yeah. So, I've, I've gotten much smarter. You don't know until you know, you know what I mean? Like the only way to, to have, um, the, the consequence of that is to find out you're pregnant essentially. And that's, uh, yeah, I have a lot of patients that that's how they had baby number two. <laughs> oh, it was trying to do it with an app or? No, just, um, kind of using the predictors. And then, so when you're fertile, when you have a baby, your body is on ultra fertility drive. Mm. And it's actually like super easy to immediately get pregnant right away. The second you ovulate again. And a lot of people miss that first ovulation, which comes before the first period. So you have all these days of breastfeeding and no menses, and then you get a little bit of mucus and that's your sign that you're in your, your that's probably your first ovulation. Okay. Okay. Well, and then I was sick recently and I was supposed to ovulate in the time frame that I was sick and it totally threw it off. And then I didn't ovulate till like way later, even if, if, if I even did that month. And now it actually has thrown my cycles into being a little bit longer, which they were like exact 28 days, but now it's like 31 days. So it's kind yeah. of crazy. That can definitely happen because usually when we have an illness or stress or a major life change or um, anything that disrupts or delays ovulation, you've now caused effects of the immature follicles, which take uh, three to six months to mature fully. So you can see that for a couple of cycles down the road. Okay. Okay. And then that's crazy because... Normally I'm pretty sure I ovulate between like day 14 and 16 and then now it's thrown to like day 18, you know, which gives me that even longer period in between of when I stop my, when I'm done with my period to where, when I eventually ovulate. Yeah. Yeah. That can definitely happen. So just even tracking that getting tighter and tighter as the months go on, you can see those subtle improvements, which is what I love about the fertility awareness method is we can see in real time how certain things are affecting us. And then things that we might have thought were affecting us that aren't really changing the way that our chart looks. And it's like, oh, maybe that doesn't have such an effect on my body. Like I thought. Well, and I take the supplement DIM for like excess estrogen. And I usually take two tablets. I forget what the milligrams are of it, but I usually take two tablets between days 19 and 24. So basically like after I ovulate up until before my period, because that's when I start to break out and things like that. And that has helped that. So I will increase it then, but I usually only take one tablet a day and it hasn't 
hasn't dropped my cycle off at all though. Yeah, that's awesome. Dim is really helpful. Um, I don't know a ton about it as getting into the world of supplements. It's getting a little yeah, beyond yeah. my expertise, but if that's helping, usually it's helping to process your estrogen better through the liver. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that you had said when I was in your clinic that day is you were talking about people, you've never seen somebody that has endometriosis that doesn't have pelvic floor issues. So can you tell me more about that? 100%. So endometriosis is a full body systemic issue. It is endometrial tissue. So endometrium is um, muscle tissue in the uterus um, or the muscle and the, all the things, all the layers that are inside of the uterus. That tissue gets outside of the uterus for whatever reason. That is still just highly up for debate. Um, they haven't found that yet in the research, but it gets deposited outside of the uterus. And now we know that actually can be all the way up in your thoracic cavity. It can be sitting on your sacral spine, on your sciatic nerve, on your bladder, on your rectum, and usually on the outside and around the pelvic floor muscles as well. And so any of those little changes are going to cause some kind of a compensation in the body, whether it's the backside, pelvic floor, the rib cage, you're going to have all of those that abdominal canister is going to compensate because the body wants to just stay in balance. And so that's the way that it is going to do that is to have a reaction. And so most people with endometriosis do present with painful intercourse. Um, that's usually something they've experienced ever since they were sexually active, um, especially if those lesions are really down in the pelvis and the pelvic floor. Um, and then I see a lot of just back pain, um, nerve referrals, nervous system dysfunction, all of that goes hand in hand with pelvic therapy. There is a subset of those with endometriosis who have what we call silent endo, and they actually have zero symptoms except for infertility. And so it starts to come up when they start to experience it. They tried natural conception for so many months, starting to go ask the ob what's going on. Usually they would be presented with the exploratory laparoscopic surgery, and then they find the lesions and take them out, get pregnant. So would, would they go to that first? They wouldn't do um, a histogram or something first? Oh, yeah. They're going to do all the steps of that. But okay, okay. usually now the screening is pretty good at saying like, okay, we have to rule out endometriosis. And the exploratory surgery is also used to rule out like fibroids and other things in the abdominal cavity um, that could be a mechanical cause and a mechanical contribution to the infertility. When things are unexplained, your cycle looks normal, um, you know, you've worked on your nutrition, your partner's sperm is really good. Those are typically the next things that you're going to be offered. 
So why does endometriosis cause infertility? So the lesions are actually all up in the way uh, around the uterus. So it makes for, it can actually be, um, okay, so endometriosis actually causes, typically it starts with mechanical infertility. So depending on where the lesions are depositing themselves, they could be inside the tubes, in the fallopian tubes. They could be around the ovary. They could be in and around where the egg is trying to implant and then all around your womb space. And so it's a lot of inflammation and an inflamed abdominopelvic cavity is just not a good home for A, fertilization and B, implantation to happen. Okay. And then what do you do as a pelvic floor therapist with patients like that? So usually it is a combined approach. So um, I like to work with the couple, first of all, because we need to see what's happening with the sperm um, if we're talking about fertility. Um, so usually I will have um, other members of the collaborative team on board, functional medicine doctor, nutritionist. REI, if that's the direction they want to go, um, and then me. And so where the physical therapy kind of takes its role is that mechanical inflamed process. So we do a lot of visceral work. So abdominal, pelvic, myofascial work, internal pelvic floor, myofascial work, restoring balance to all the tissues, the low back, the lumbar spine, the thoracic. Um, getting a lot of exercises to help do that in the hands-on manual therapy. And then also I usually do teach my fertility patients how to do the charting as well. Okay. So then that helps them to not inadvertently get pregnant when they're trying to fix themselves first. <laughs> no. Um, so in this case, the charting is actually, um, viewed as the measure of their health and their hormone balance. And so okay. what we'll see is a lot of people with endometriosis have normal 28 day cycles because they're ovulating just normally, but they will have um, maybe some presentations of like estrogen dominance, which is in the functional world. I think the estrogen dominance term is changing. Um, but they are very sensitive at ovulation time and I'll have them track their symptoms around that time. And then also period pain is a big one. And so we're seeing the changes month by month in the period pain, in the ovulation pain, and then in the premenstrual spotting. Those are the three big ones that I see on the chart for endometriosis. So not necessarily using the chart as birth control, but as a measure of overall hormone balance. Okay. And so what are some things that people can watch out for if they do have hormone imbalances? So when we're using the chart, we are using the parameters of the chart. So we should have a luteal phase of 12 to 16 days. So after your temperature shifts, it should stay high for that many days. Um, and if you're counting by mucus, it should dry, stay dry for that many days until your next period. 
A short luteal is called a luteal phase defect, and it's directly related to low progesterone after ovulation, which is going to make it very difficult for implantation to occur. And so then we've got to back up and figure out why is the progesterone low? And that's for the functional medicine doctor and for, you know, those more, um, those other collaborative people on the team to kind of dive into a little bit more. Um, a lot of people who are reaching perimenopause, they actually ovulate early. And that's because their FSH is so high at the beginning of the cycle the egg is racing to be mature before it's actually mature. And then it's being released and it's poor egg quality that's being released each month. So a short follicular phase is usually indicative of that. Um, and then symptoms as well. So our cycle should, should be symptom free. Um, if you're having that period pain, you know, can't function, have to stay home from work, like that's a sign. If you're having the ovulation symptoms, that's a sign. Um, what are ovulation the symptoms? Um, there are so many. <laughs> so I've never that, heard of that. I've never heard of ovulation symptoms. <laughs> yes. A lot of that has to do with the estrogen processing because estrogen is really high during ovulation. So um, I'll see people with like a one-sided abdominal pain that lasts all the day. It's not just the, the ovulation, like, Ooh, I felt it release. Um, I'll see that radiating into the back. And then I'll also see, um, the acne, the gut issues, the IBS will be more present. And, um, also the pelvic floor changes in relationship to these hormonal shifts. So, Typically, my uh, patients with endo or with some hormonal imbalance, if they've got leakage, it'll be more present in the luteal phase when estrogen is dropping and not being processed um, very well. And I'll see more pain with sex in the luteal versus in the follicular, you know, same person reports way less pain with sex. So there's definitely that hormonal influence on all of our muscles in the pelvic floor as well. I know that just the area down there gets a lot more sensitive, like right before I start my period, just from getting like waxed or getting like <laughs> laser right before then. But for me, I, so this is like totally TMI, but we're already going there. Um, I was on birth control for so long that I didn't really even notice a lot of like how my cycles were or weren't. I just knew that I had really short cycles before I got on birth control and I had really bad acne. So obviously there was things there that nobody addressed and they just put me on birth control for when I was like 14 and I actually got put on Accutane for that. So then of course, after, you know, a certain amount of time and I got on and off it a little bit in my twenties when I was like really single and I was traveling, but, um, when I was like 25 or so, so probably like a good, like 10 years after I had been on Accutane came up again, where it's just, I started breaking out really bad chest back, everything and nothing helped. So then of course, what do they do? Put me on Accutane again. But, um, then once I totally got off of it, it was so interesting trying to find this balance in this dance, because then it was like, I would get like cystic acne bumps 
you know, I would get like a whole bunch of like little bumps all over my forehead. And then like all around here, I would get just these gnarly, really painful bumps. And then some of my hair started thinning and I would just get really puffy, but I didn't have bad periods. That was a crazy thing is ever since I stopped birth control, immediately my cycle was totally quote normal, you know, 28 days, exactly about four to five days of bleeding, you know? So it was one of those things where I was like, okay, like, I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. I I think a lot of in our teen years, we, um, our estrogen receptors, they're not, they're not understanding the connection with the estrogen. It takes a couple of years for the cycle to first normalize at the onset of menarche. And that's when a lot of those early symptoms can happen. And then um, on the flip side, typically if you go on birth control as a teenager and then you get off of it, whenever you get off of it, your cycle usually resumes to where it was. So the underlying thing is still there. Well, and that's what I try to tell so many women I know that like they get off of it for a hot second because I've, I've had a lot of conversations about, okay, I didn't know these things. And now I feel like it is my duty to educate other people of all the things that it's actually doing to your body that you don't even know. I mean, just totally destroying your gut and overburdening your liver. And it's crazy because when I was on birth control, I thought I felt fine. I thought everything was fine. But then it's like I would get sunspots and like other weird things. And then eventually I ended up having elevated iron levels because I wasn't even having breakthrough bleeding at all. I wouldn't even have any spotting or anything. So I didn't have a period for years. And that's actually why I loved it. And then I ended up having elevated iron levels because I wasn't bleeding at all. So then, okay, getting off it and trying to get everything normalized was a fun process. Yeah, super common. Um, it's not, you know, and of course it's not wrong to be on hormonal contraceptives or anything like that, but there are a ton of side effects. And I think that they're very, um, under talked about and they're, it's almost like shoved under the rug. And the doctor just says like, well, this is the only way we can treat your cycle, but actually we're not treating your cycle. We're masking it. Yep. And then that's the whole thing about, not knowing what other options there are. And it seems very overwhelming at first when you don't know anything about natural fertility methods, you know, and tracking your cycle. But it's like, that's why there's women like you that exist out there to help with that and to just really take your power back as a woman. Because I mean, on hormonal birth control, we're literally, we're literally like turning off our main thing that makes us a woman, you know, and that regulates so much else of our body. Yeah. And even to go, you know, back to the pelvic floor, there's something called hormonal contraceptive induced vulvodynia, which I have seen quite a bit. Um, And that is the effects on the vaginal tissue from the contraceptive. And what's happening is the depletion of local ovarian androgens and estrogen is actually causing a menopause-like state to the vagina. And those muscles are becoming less filled with plump blood and they're becoming more dry and very irritated. And so a lot of patients will suddenly present with painful intercourse and they can't relate it 
to any reason or anything. And um, usually they need the pelvic therapy and then they need maybe like um, a couple of months of testosterone cream or something down there to kind of replenish that local hormone that was depleted. That's crazy. Well, I will say I have heard a lot of women in their 20s that would talk about how much they need like external lubricant to have sex. And I was like, what? Like, you're so young. I don't understand that. But most of them are on birth control. And then the other factor with that is that you're with the wrong damn partner because I'm telling you, your vagina knows. It knows <laughs> who is and isn't good for you. Okay. And that is one of the ways. I mean, your pH is always going to get off from anything outside of you going in you, but it's, you're less likely to have actual complications from a partner that's actually like for you. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, but I will say I love me some lubricant. <laughs> Big Better the better. It can only help. <laughs> yes. Yes. I just found it crazy though, that like they're all so young, you know? And then I mean, in my thirties and then like being off birth control, I'm like, um, yeah, no, that's definitely not a problem. I mean, especially in that period of when right after my period ends to like right after I ovulate, it's mm -hmm. just like ridiculous. Yeah. And then I like literally lose my mind. I'm like, oh, I need a baby. I need a baby. Yeah. <laughs> Your body's like <laughs> gearing up for it. It's like a this like symphony orchestra that it's like you're, you're producing more mucus. So you're already kind of wet all the time and it increases your libido right then. It's, it's kind of, it's very interesting. Oh gosh. And then going to one of the gyms that I used to go to, there's no AC. And so in the summertime, it would just be, it would be horrible to try to go in the afternoon and the fans are blowing and I can literally smell every dude from across the gym. My sense of smell just is even more sensitive at that time. And it's, it's not a good thing. I'm like, Ugh. yeah, I know whose pheromones are not for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Okay. So women trying to get off birth control after they've had a baby what are some things for them to know? So they're getting off birth control and they've already had a baby. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my first question would be, did you recover fully from the first baby? Um, because it does take about 18 months. Um, and most of that is postpartum nutrient depletion. So whether you're breastfeeding or not, your hormones are like roller coastering, you know, your progesterone is higher than it's ever been. And then all of a sudden it's plummeting postpartum to kind of get back to that normal baseline level. Same with estrogen. Um, so a lot of um, inflammatory things kind of rear their ugly heads postpartum, like Hashimoto's, um, IBS issues. We tend to see those creep up during those 18 months just because if you think about the thyroid being a very nutrient dense gland, it needs nutrients in order to produce our thyroid molecules. Um, so postpartum and off of, of hormonal contraceptive, your first starting point is definitely nutrient replenishment. 
the pill depletes similar nutrients, the B vitamins, zinc, testosterone, all the things. So replenishing that as soon as possible is really beneficial, getting it from your food if possible. And then if some of that is not enough or you're not sure where to go, working with a functional medicine provider or a nutritionist or someone that can really look at what you're eating and give you more specific guidelines. But that's the first thing. Um, And then just definitely tracking. Um, You don't always have to be doing like a detailed fertility awareness method to be tracking, right? Like if you even just have the awareness of, oh, I have the cervical mucus now, I'm probably in my fertile window. And then when it stops and it stops for three days, that confirms ovulation. So just even loosely keeping track of like, am I having that on a regular basis? I'm probably ovulating, you know, which is if you're ovulating, that's a sign that your body is in a good space. Okay, good. I'm just trying to think of, of my own circumstances. No, it's just, I know some other women that, you know, have had kids and been on birth control for a certain amount of time. And then they're looking to get off, but it's kind of like, okay, well, what do I need to know kind of thing? And is it any different whether you've had a baby or not? Yeah, I would say I worked with a lot of women who they didn't have a problem getting pregnant the first time. And then they wanted some time and went on the birth control. And now maybe they're a little bit older. Circumstances are a little bit different. And natural conception is just not happening. And my first thought is we never really address the postpartum nutrient depletion state. And that's where you're kind of picking back up at. Um, And so you can um, see this in folks who are having a lot of chemical pregnancies, which is a very sensitive topic. And obviously, if you've had that... um, you know, I'm definitely very sorry to hear that. If that's a chemical pregnancy. So that is where you are getting pregnant and you are having your loss so early that usually the only way that you know is if you were tracking. Oh, okay. Okay. So there, there was fertilization with the egg and the sperm. It formed an embryo and then it just didn't. There was no, um, no real egg was actually in there that was healthy enough to actually go on. So it's um, sometimes these chemicals can delay your next period and then you'll get a positive pregnancy test and then one to three weeks later, you'll have your period again. And so it's a very early, early loss. You you don't have, you don't have to do any intervention for it usually. Um, But I see that a lot in nutrient, uh, nutrient states of where we haven't quite, quite replenished the nutrients yet. And you're still in that state where the body is kind of having to work really hard. Okay. That's good to know. I I didn't even had no idea that was, that was something that existed. Yeah. I would say if you're not tracking and you could have had a chemical 
and you might not have ever known because sometimes they happen. Um, you only delay your period by like a day or three. Um, people tend to know when their period is a week or two weeks or three weeks late. And then it's more like, okay, let's pull out the pregnancy test, see. And then when, when, um, when the HCG starts to go down, that's when it's like, okay, I don't know if something is right here. And then you get your period. Okay. All right. Tell me more about what everybody says are normal things that you deal with a lot that you have other views on. Yeah. So many things. So I will (laughs) say the first thing is the kind of normal normalization of what happens during pregnancy and postpartum to your core and pelvic floor. So, I mean, I hear this crap from doctors that, you know, your vagina is always going to be weak. Of course you're going to leak. You know, it's normal to have pain with sex for a while. Let's wait six months and see if it's still there. And then maybe we'll do something about it. Um, so these things are actually not normal. And while there is some commonality to them because you're pregnant, it doesn't make it um, acceptable, so to speak. So we need better advocacy for women to know that there's actually simple solutions to addressing these things, even on the preventative front. So I have my patients start with me in the second trimester before there's ever any issue. And we're actually working on the pelvic floor, the core, their strength, their pelvic floor strength um, to prevent leakage because you're going to get a big stretch from the uterus onto the pelvic floor, which is going to cause some weakness. That's just natural changes to the pelvic floor. It doesn't have to cause leakage and it doesn't have to cause prolapse and pain. We can mitigate that by staying ahead of it during pregnancy and then postpartum getting into the pelvic floor therapist pretty much as soon as possible, almost like it's just on your checklist. Like, Hey, I'm three to six weeks postpartum. I know I need my pelvic therapy check. That can save you a lot of headache three and six months down the road by just kind of ignoring it and continue to leak and continue to have pain. So that's a big thing. Um, I see a lot of OB-GYNs offering my patients surgery, like bladder slings and prolapse repairs, but they've never tried pelvic therapy. (laughs) And I'm like, why wouldn't you follow the ACOG guidelines and get this person to do some exercises (laughs) and some Things that if it doesn't work, then, oh, well, it didn't work. But we we do know that majority of the time it does work. So um, that's a kind of a misnomer. And bladder slings, I've seen, I've seen patients who have the exact same symptoms post-bladder sling, post-prolapse repair. And a surgery is a surgery. So if you can avoid that, that would be fantastic. Um, the other thing that I've heard in my practice quite a bit is someone is experiencing pelvic pain and painful intercourse. 
first person they usually talk to is their ob because obviously that's who you talk to about your lady parts. And I've had patients who were offered a hysterectomy because their uterus was tilted or malpositioned or whatever. And the ob was like, well, you know, there's nothing else that I can figure out that's causing your pain. So I think we need to do a hysterectomy. And the number of women who are moving forward with that is, is unbelievable. (laughs) And, um, I'm just glad I've had several that just, they did their own Googling. They found pelvic therapy. We do the internal exam They've got major trigger points along their levator ani and their internal hip muscles that we're able to work through. And then we're also able to work through other reasons that they can check off. Like if you have an IUD, I've seen a lot of times the IUD can cause pelvic pain. So we've got to address all these little bits of things and the pain can resolve. And I could go on a, a rant about this forever, but I think women need to stop being offered an elective hysterectomy for things that aren't warranted. Now, there are several cases where a hysterectomy is 100% the best course of action, and that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, I don't really know why you're having pain, so let's just take the uterus out. And how often do you see women that have trauma that they're holding in like their hips and in their body and in their pelvic region, especially if they've had like sexual trauma in the past? And is that something you deal with also with the therapy? Yes, I see that a lot. Um, And I actually see, so the pelvic floor is, has a lot of estrogen receptors very sensitive to the hormonal changes. Not only with trauma, not only could there be a physical thing, but there could be a stress response associated, raising cortisol, stealing pregnenolone, which is a precursor for progesterone, stealing estrogen. So now we're all wound up in in the multitude of the pain really being multifactorial. And I see this, I would say in the majority of my patients that have pelvic pain because of either a past trauma, like a physical trauma with a partner or something or medical trauma where they felt like everybody kept telling them, this is normal. This is in your head. And, you know, women have only just begun to be included in research. Like it's, it's crazy, but I see that a lot. A a solid trauma response is to clench the pelvic floor and clench the jaw and the neck. And so I'll see these co-presentation patterns of neck pain, jaw pain, pelvic floor pain, and really all of it needs to be addressed head to toe with all the hands-on work, dry needling to reset the nervous system, vagus nerve exercises and diaphragmatic breathing, internal work to your comfort level, um, and a good proper rehab exercise program. 
So tell me about the connection with the jaw and the neck pain in your pelvic floor. Yeah. Sounds crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've gotten that. So response. many, so many women I know have TMJ and they actually go get like Botox for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's another, uh, little, little side, uh, rant. So Botox is just inhibiting the muscle. It's not addressing it. Yeah. Um, what's happening. We have a diaphragm here. We have a diaphragm here, and then we have a diaphragm in the pelvic floor. They're all connected. They're all like in utero. They're actually very developed from the same tissue, which is pretty interesting to think about. Um, whenever you're, you have TMJ issues, what's usually happening is there's a lot of clenching going on. And there's all these facial muscles that get tight. And then we do a lot of this. So we're doing a lot of compensations at the upper cervical spine to help stabilize for the muscles here. And then that actually causes more compensations at the thoracic rib cage and diaphragm. And you can even try yourself to see now that's just the top half of the body. If you actually put your tongue to the top, the roof of your mouth, and you bring your head forward, you'll feel your pelvic floor contract. Even just changing how we clench and how we use our neck is going to create that pattern in the pelvic floor. And I, I've been doing pelvic therapy for a while now, and I like to call myself a specialist because I've been, um, I dive really deep into people's issues and I've gotten a lot of second opinion patients. And a lot of times what I see is the pelvic therapists are just going vaginally at the pelvic floor and they're not doing anything else. And I'm asking you about your neck and your jaw pain and your nutrition and all of these things. And turns out none of that's been addressed. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, we got to get to work. And so I do a lot of um, co-treating with Patrick. He'll do any of the like joint work and manipulations and dry needling. And then we'll set up the full body rehab exercise program. But Pelvic therapists um, are starting, the holistic viewpoint is starting to kind of take off where we're getting out of the pelvis and not just looking at the vaginal muscles over and over and over again. It's the relationship from head to toe of what's, what's really causing the vaginal muscles to behave that way. And it won't be fully addressed until you find the actual drivers, such as the neck, jaw, diaphragm, rib cage, all those things. I will say out of all the things that I have learned in the last handful of years, one of them that has been one of the hardest things to retrain myself is the way I freaking breathe. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny because you pointed it out when I was in your office that day about like how like a lot of lifters have just the the chest breathing and not like incorporating your abdomen, which that has been such a conscious rewiring for me. And that's not easy. Yeah. And that's because it's supposed to be passive. We're not supposed to have to think 
super hard at the way our pelvic floor moves or our diaphragm. But when we have dysfunction, suddenly it's very difficult and we get a lot of these patterns, upper ab gripping. And let's say we're doing a hundred pound deadlift. We're using our upper abs to get it. We're probably actually blowing out the pelvic floor. That's straining versus a proper Valsalva where you're getting that good diaphragmatic breath, that good exhale, pelvic floor contraction, rigid spine, and all this happens in harmony. Um, the lifting is like a whole other, <laughs> a whole other can of worms, but um, yeah. And so it all works together in function. And then we can use even just diaphragmatic breathing, like a bedtime routine to stimulate the vagus nerve. Okay. So how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so the diaphragm is a muscle. So it is innervated by the vagus nerve. And whenever we actually use that muscle, that nerve is activated and stimulated. So all muscles have nerve innervations, what we call them. You need the electricity supplied to the muscle in order for it to contract. When you take a really good inhale through the abdominal canister, you are actually concentrically activating the diaphragm and therefore stimulating the vagus nerve. And so if you're starting to get sleepy, if your um, breathing rate is lowering, you're starting to hear bowel sounds or stomach sounds, those are all signs that you're really dropping into that vagus nerve stimulation. And that works really well for people that, or it's really necessary for people that have existed in a constant fight or flight. Yeah. And in fact, some people, it can actually be, um, provoke some anxiety because flipping that switch so fast, getting into that out of the fight or flight is almost like, wait, my body doesn't know how to do that. Um, and so that's a really big thing. Stress is the modern day smoking of our generation. It's, we are all living a high stress life in busy and crazy lifestyle. Oh, I know. And that was one of my like biggest things of leaving the hospital and leaving healthcare is that I don't want that. You know, I don't want to live in that constant state of chaos, you know, and it's interesting that you don't realize how much your nervous system is programmed for that stuff and how much it's comfortable for you until you try to stop doing, stop doing it. And then, like you said, oh, it's uncomfortable. And I really had to find this happy middle ground because I had two speeds, like go hard or not at all. If I go to yoga, I'd fall asleep you know, and I couldn't actually enjoy that happy middle point of laying there in stillness without falling asleep. Yeah, it's hard. And um, I love to use restorative yoga techniques because it's a little more directed. And I literally have patients come to my office. I just want to do that thing where I laid down for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like the only time that they are taking for themselves and they're like really dropping into that parasympathetic state. And it is like, it, it helps to 
contribute to relieving the pelvic pain, back pain, anything that's been chronic, we need to get you dropped into your parasympathetics. So what are a few take-homes for women to try to, that they can focus their attention on and their energy towards to really take back their power in their pelvic health and in their hormone health? Yeah, I would say right now, because of the uptick in social media and Google and um, you don't need referrals anymore, you can find a lot of information online. So we're moving away from this approach of let me ask my practitioner if it's okay. You don't have to accept answers that you're not resonating with. And even if that practitioner is correct, if it doesn't resonate with you, you know, you want to establish a good relationship with someone that you trust and that it goes both ways. Um, So advocate for yourself. You don't have to be an anatomy nerd to know that something doesn't feel right, that this can't be normal. Um, And chances are there's somebody out there that can help you And so just keep advocating for yourself and it's all going to depend on where you're at in your life. For some people right now, hormonal contraceptive might make sense for them. And that's completely fine. When you're ready to get off of it, you can start picking up resources. The fifth vital sign, take charge of your fertility. It starts with the egg. Um, Just kind of gaining some understanding through some of those, um, things like the books can really help put it into perspective. And then when you're ready to take steps, you can just take one step at a time. So you don't have to do everything all at once. You don't have to like set up your vagus nerve schedule and your nutrition and your charting and your pelvic therapy, you know, habits that last is just taking one step at a time consistently and then building upon that for the longevity and to really see the changes and the goals that you want. Yes. I love that. Take home ladies. You don't have to be miserable. You get to actually enjoy this life and you get to enjoy your cycles and you get to enjoy amazing sex that doesn't hurt and cause more trauma. You just have to be your own advocate and find amazing people like Dr. Thompson, that can help you with these things. And like she said, we live in this age of information. So to educate yourself and keep advocating for yourself. And if somebody says you're crazy, say, okay, well, you know, I'm crazy enough to find someone else that's going to help me. Exactly. There's somebody out there for everybody. (laughs) Yes. And you said you do in the office stuff, but you said you have virtual options too. Yes. So we have the clinic. So um, you're welcome to come there. And then also I have developed full virtual pelvic therapy and fertility awareness programs as well. They're all customized to you. So it's not a, it's not a one size. Everybody just gets this thing. We do full assessments and everything. Awesome. Awesome. And then what is the best way to get in contact with you or to find you? Yeah. So on Instagram, my handle is Dr. Mel Thompson, doctor is DR. Um, And then our clinic website is flowptwellness.com. Perfect. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. And I hope everybody got some very useful information out of this episode today. And I will see you guys on the next one. Have a great day. Bye.